Immerse yourself in amazing stories on Now TV. Find power plays and critically acclaimed shows, Gangs of London, Succession, and Game of Thrones. Witness triumphs and defeats in documentaries Hillary and Tiger Woods Back. And join misfits and misadventures in the US office and Brassic. Stream all these and more with a seven-day free trial only on Now TV. 18 plus UK only. New entertainment customers only. Passes auto renew at 9.99 a month unless cancelled. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. It has to be said that in the world of biology, plants often get overlooked. Yes, we regularly recognize them for their aesthetic beauty, but their genetic dynamics are also fascinating and incredibly complex. And today we're going to get a taste of this as we explore the recent Heredity paper, Multi-Level Patterns of Genetic Structure and Isolation by Distance in the Widespread Plant Mimulus Cutatus. Or, if you prefer, and I do, the Yellow Monkey Flower. This is a really interesting discussion and clearly shows why this plant is an emerging model system in genetics and evolution. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. Can you please just tell everyone listening who you are? Yeah, my name's Alex Twyford, and I'm a lecturer in botany at the University of Edinburgh. Well, thank you for joining me. And this paper is kind of focused on the genetic structure of what's commonly known as the monkey flower. Now, I've never actually heard of this plant before, so I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about it and why it's interesting, kind of apart from the clearly amazing name. Yes. Uh, so yeah, if you're out and about doing field work in the UK or walking along a riverside, you might see monkey flowers. They've become widely naturalized in the UK, but they're native to North America. And they're really exciting because they're emerging as a novel model system for studying evolutionary and ecological processes. So we have Arabidopsis as one of our main plant model systems, but you can't do everything with one plant. And monkey flowers are really fascinating because they occur all the way from the Mexican border up to the north in Alaska. And across that range, they show amazing variation in their ecology. So you get some plants which will grow in thermal hot springs where the soil is literally bubbling with boiling water and they've adapted to that environment. You get other populations which grow in copper mines and they've adapted to copper in the soil. And then some populations which grow right on the seafront and they're exposed to really salty conditions. And I think it's that ecological variation which has captured people's attention over the last 50 years. Wow, they sound fantastic. And um, I guess one of the really interesting things you're talking about there is this huge geographic distribution and these sort of fairly specialized environments. Because what you were actually focused in on in this paper was the genetic structure of these plants at different spatial scales. And I wonder if you could just tell us why this is important and why it's interesting and the sort of real motivation behind the study. Yeah, so there's a, I suppose, a mimula-specific aspect and then a much more general aspect to that. In terms of mimulus, it is remarkable that they are just so widespread and it raises lots of questions like how did they become so widespread? Did they spread very rapidly after the glacial period? And yeah, how have they adapted to that really wide range of environments? I suppose more generally, a lot of people are interested in genetic structure of organisms, be it plants or animals or other groups. And yet when you start to investigate that, you find different processes act at different scales. So if you're looking at individuals within a population, you'll be using different approaches and different methods to if you're studying across a whole species range. And so we were hoping to try and reconcile some of those differences and uh, deploy different methods in one species and see, see whether we get a different picture at a very fine scale or a large spatial scale. Mm, fantastic. So I guess what were your sort of specific aims here then? Yes. Yeah, so we wanted to understand 
about dispersal. So we wanted to know at a very small spatial scale, so within a population over hundreds of meters, do you see the signature of dispersal? And then as you scale up then to hundreds of kilometers, do you see dispersal shaping genetic structure in the same way? And then finally, when you expand to the whole of the species native range in North America, do you see similar patterns arising from dispersal? So most of our research questions were focused around those aspects. We also had some more technical questions about the genetic markers and how we can compare population genetic approaches. So one of the really interesting things you're talking about is this sort of massive distribution that these plants have. So I guess the sort of big question is, how did you decide which populations to target? Yeah, so as is usual in science, part of that was really planned and thought through, and then some of that was opportunistic. So for the finest spatial scale, we wanted to get populations where individuals occurred really continuously, so we could look at a very fine spatial scale. So we went to two stunning populations in California, and uh, yeah, it's great (laughs) to see some of those locations and really look at them in detail. So in those sites, you get tens or hundreds of thousands of mimulus plants growing really close together, so we can look at genetic relatedness over a small spatial scale. So that, that was quite planned. And then similarly, the medium spatial scale, where we're looking across the Sierra Nevada, we drove and then every 100 kilometers or so we stopped and we collect a mimulus population. So we ended up with this sort of transect across that whole mountain range. And then for the wider spatial scale, uh, we ended up reanalyzing data we'd collected for a previous paper published a few years ago. And there that was a mixture of uh, very targeted collections and then using what was available from previous collectors. So people like David Lowry and uh, some other researchers working on Mimulus had collected lots of populations and they very kindly sent us our seeds. So we had representation all the way from the south of California up into Alaska, which would obviously be very hard to collect by oneself. So yeah, it's a great <laughs> example of collaboration and sharing material. Oh, fantastic. And it also sounds like you were able to combine some good science with a sort of fairly classic American road trip. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, it sounds as though you were able to collect a pretty impressive range of samples. And I kind of wonder exactly what it was that you did with these, particularly considering that you mentioned earlier that you had some questions about genetic markers and how you select them. Yeah. So then downstream, we extracted DNA from all of our different samples. For the fine spatial scale, we had around 200 individuals. And there we were asking questions about relatedness within populations. And to do that, we just used quite standard PCR-based markers. So that's Mike satellites and similar markers. So we had 10 genetic markers, which we used for all of those individuals. And then for the wider spatial scales, the two larger scales, we used genotyping by sequencing or GBS, which is a reduced representation approach where you're cutting the genome into smaller fragments, similar to RAD sequencing, and then using next generation sequencing to generate markers across the genome. And I suppose we we had some questions at the start about whether we could compare between those different marker types. And um, I guess that kind of quite nicely leads into asking exactly what it was that you were finding about the genetic structure. And yeah, were you able to compare these data sets? Yes. So... At the fine spatial scale, we found really rampant dispersal. So over the scale of hundreds of uh, meters, we find that mimulus seeds really do move around. And yeah, you get a real lack of genetic structure at that scale. And then as you start to scale up and you move to the Sierra Nevada over hundreds of kilometers, you see a decline in allele frequencies with no clear genetic breaks. So it wasn't like we were detecting a major barrier to dispersal there. And as we look at the very broadest scale across the whole of North America, we start to see clear genetic clusters 
um, which correspond to coastal and uh, more northerly individuals. But again, these are signatures of post-glacial expansion, but there's still a really clear signature of migration and dispersal. So we're seeing that signal of dispersal at all of those different spatial scales. And in the paper, we also tried to integrate across spatial scales and across market types. So we include some uh, more complex variogram analyses where we could look at that dispersal. And again, when we start to reconcile different spatial scales, we're still seeing that really clear signature of dispersal. Mm, Fantastic. And I guess, what do you think is sort of driving these dispersal patterns? Because obviously, people tend to think of plants as being fairly sedentary. So what do you think is causing these structures that you're seeing? Yes. So it is definitely the case that in the research community, and I suppose the general public, people think that plants are rooted to the ground, and therefore they cannot move around the landscape. But it now seems really clear from our work and lots of other people's research that actually plants can be extremely dispersive. And you just have to go out into the wild and see sites that were previously barren and have then been cleared, how rapidly plants can colonize environments. So, I mean, here, I really think it's seed dispersal and mimulus have got small seeds that are easily wind dispersed or uh, secondary dispersed by other animals, which has really allowed them to colonize over a massive area. They've also got very attractive yellow flowers, which are visited by lots of different pollinators, and that spreads the pollen uh, over a quite quite a large range as well. And uh, I suppose beyond that, some of the populations are perennial, and so they have asexual spreading stolons, so sort of uh, low-growing stems, which can break off and get spread along watercourses. So it seems like Mimulus has adapted in many different ways to become highly dispersive, allowing it to rapidly colonise different environments. Mm, fantastic. And they do look beautiful, much more so than Arabidopsis, it has to be said. I, I don't like to shout about it, but yeah, they're very attractive plants. They're really nice to work on. Um, so I guess, I wonder what you think the sort of key findings in this paper are. Um, like, what's the sort of broad message that people should be getting when they read this? I think one thing is that if you're wanting to understand genetic structure in your favourite organism, whether that's a plant or an animal or any other group, that we're so often interested in one spatial scale, and that just gives us one part of the picture. But it's only when we start to look at multiple spatial scales, you really get the complete picture and uh, really understand a species dispersal and migration history. So I think that's probably the biggest take-home message. There's a more subtle message in the paper about the complexities about analysing genetic structure. And that's the issue of isolation by distance, which is a topic we tackle in in some detail. So in uh, many organisms, you find a pattern of isolation by distance, or IBD. And that is that as you go over a larger geographic scale, or as you get further apart, you find greater genetic distance. So there's a correlation between geographic distance and genetic distance. And that's a a fundamental pattern that drives genetic structure in lots of different species. Um, And we've known about that for a very long time. But a lot of spatial genetic analyses don't take into account isolation by distance. And because of that, we can come up with spurious patterns. And in the paper, we use some recently developed software that counts for IBD. And then once you account for that, you can really see the clearer genetic patterns. So for example, here with our Mimula study, when we didn't account for isolation by distance in the Sierra Nevada, we saw a genetic cluster in the north and a genetic cluster in the south. 
And then once we account for IBD, we actually find that that pattern really gets soaked up or largely disappears. And there's no barrier to dispersal between the north and south. It's just this pattern of genetic structure caused by isolation by distance. So I think there's sort of a wider message there that if you want to understand genetic structure, you need to be thinking about isolation by distance at the same time. Mm, no, for sure. And it's uh, it's very interesting to think of just how wide a range these plants can cover with essentially no barriers. And I guess you talked earlier about these plants, uh, these monkey flowers becoming an emerging model. And a lot of sort of genetic structure analyses tend to set up some quite interesting future projects. So I just kind of wonder where you think this study is going now. Yes, so I think there's quite a few different directions, some of which I'm pursuing and some other researchers are picking up on. I suppose there's one complex part of the paper which I haven't touched on yet, which is that the overall genetic signature is that of dispersal. And we see that those three spatial scales, and that really jumps out when you look at the data. But there's one part that still is hard to explain. And that is at this uh, sort of over hundreds of kilometers, the Sierra Nevada spatial scale. So when we look at distinct populations, when we calculate one population genetic statistic, FST, we find a, a quite a high value, so about 0.5 or so. And lots of other people who work on this monkey flower as well find a value of 0.5. And that FST value is between 0 and 1. It rarely reaches 1 for various reasons about variation within populations. So actually that value of 0.4 or 0.5 is really high, and that's telling us lots of variations partition between populations rather than within populations. So to me, that is really puzzling. I've spent a lot of time thinking that through. Why is it that you get the signature of dispersal, but yet you have high FST? Usually, if you've got the signature of dispersal, you'd have a very low FST because you'd get homogenization of different populations. So it takes some time to get your head around that. And actually, we really want to try and work out why is there this discrepancy? And we can sort of suggest two different ideas. One might be that FST is not working well in these species. So FST, as any single statistic, can't capture all the variation and will have various limitations. And it might be something like Mimulus, which has got a really large affected population size and huge amounts of variation. Perhaps it's violating the assumptions of FST and it makes very many assumptions. So that's one source of potential. The other one might be that FST is actually right, and that even though there's the signature of dispersal over large scales and, well, and smaller scales, but over evolutionary time scales, it could actually be that any individual mimulus plant is dispersing relatively small distances. It's just when you combine all those individuals, you start to see broad-scale dispersal. So there's a few complexities to that dispersal story, as with any research, which we really want to dig into. And I think Janice Friedman, who was a co-author on the paper and was my postdoctoral mentor and a, a really great scientist to work with, she's now picking up on some of that research and she's going back to basics. And rather than look at genetic markers, she's actually taking uh, mimulus plants and then putting them on the table and putting lines on the table and literally looking at how far the seeds disperse. And hopefully that sort of ground truth data will really show the dispersal curve. So I think there's a lot of questions there still about dispersal. No one study is going to solve. So there's a lot of research there. I suppose more generally, a lot of people are continuing to work on Mimulus. And I really hope that this study provides some sort of benchmark information that allows people to put their, their population in that broader range-wide context. Mm, fantastic, for sure. And I guess that actually moves quite nicely into my final question. And that's that 
plants in general tend to get a little bit overlooked in biology, and I've actually kind of been guilty of it myself. And I know it's something that you feel strongly about. So I wonder if you could just make the case for more people to kind of put aside some of the vertebrate studies and to pay more attention to the plant models. Yes. So it is a topic that is very close to my heart. You're absolutely right. And it is a real frustration for me as a researcher that if I'm lecturing students, they may come up to me afterwards and say, I enjoyed your lecture. I've always found plants boring because all people talk about is stomata or phloem and xylem. And I find it disappointing because so often we focus in on those mechanistic differences, which are interesting. I'm not downplaying that, but they're not the things that really excite me. And for me as a plant biologist, and I'm proud to call myself a botanist, there's a lot of really exciting aspects and most of them around plant diversity. So there are hundreds of thousands of different plant species and the ecological variation is remarkable. All you have to do is walk in any natural environment, particularly somewhere like a tropical forest, and you'll be surrounded by hundreds of different plant species, all adapted to different conditions and interacting in different ways. So I think that what we call plant blindness or lack of plant awareness is disappointing. And I suppose I'm trying to inspire other people to sort of open their eyes and think more about plants because there's a lot we can learn from plants that we can't learn from vertebrates, like you say. For example, plants show remarkable variation in, in genome size. So the smallest genomes are perhaps 60 megabases, so really small, and the largest are 150 gigabases, so over 2,000 times variation from the smallest plant genomes to the largest plant genomes, whereas mammals show very little variation by comparison. So really, I think we need to be a bit more open and understanding that plants are exciting and that they're often some of the best organisms to test any particular research question. Yeah, for sure. I I was very much one of those undergrads that came into my university course thinking that plants were very boring. And the further through you get, the more you just realize that, yeah, there's there's a lot of questions that can be answered there. So hopefully people will now go and read your study and will maybe jump on the monkey flower model system, well, emerging model system. And I wonder if you could just remind people what your paper is called and also mention your sort of co-authors or anybody else who's contributed to the study. So the paper is called Multi-Level Patterns of Genetic Structure and Isolation by Distance in the Widespread Plant Mimulus Guttatus. And my co-authors are Edgar Wong and Janice Friedman. Edgar was an MSc student who was working with me for his MSc project. He did the fine spatial scale work. So he did that genetic analysis, did a really good job. And he's now a PhD student at the University of Oxford and doing really exciting research. Fantastic. And Janice is a professor based at Queen's University now in Canada. And she works on plant ecology and evolution. And uh, we continue to collaborate and work together in lots of different uh, projects. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining me and telling us all about the wonderful monkey flower. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, been a pleasure. Thanks to Alex. If you want to read his paper, you can find it on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. And from plants to people, let's pop over to the Genetics Unzip podcast with Dr. Kat Arney to see what they're discussing in their latest episode. latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we take a look at the progress that's been made in rare genetic disorders and the challenges that remain. Ronnie Jortner, CEO of Masthead Biosciences and a trustee of the Cambridge Rare Disease Network, talks about tackling the diagnostic odyssey that sees patients and their families taking up to 20 years to get a diagnosis, all the way through to promising new approaches for treatment that aren't all about gene therapy. 
Plus, we hear from prenatal genetic counsellor Kira Deneen about how new tests are helping people carrying genetic variations make decisions about starting a family. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. An important and incredibly interesting topic. Please make sure you give it a listen. But that's us for today. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast on all good podcast platforms, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. Out here in Iceland, it's not always easy. Yes, we have more daylight in the summer than you could ever imagine. But with the weather and the mountainous track to your nearest neighbor, you need to be strong on the inside. Find the strength to take on the day with a bowl of Arlaskir, high-protein Icelandic-style yogurt. Arlaskir. Take your mornings seriously. Ooh.